Fab Lab podcast, interviewing Aaron Crowley, getting to know him with a few fun questions. Welcome to the Fab Lab, the stone industry's only podcast dedicated exclusively to the business side of your stone shop, where we focus on improving operations inside the business so we can experience more life outside of it. So let's get down to business. Welcome back to the Fab Lab podcast. I am your host, Aaron Crowley. Here with my co-host, Wes Rice, for a very unique, I'm not sure we will call it a special edition episode <laughs> of the Fab Lab, but it's going to be different. It's going to be unique. We just started recording. I told Wes we're going cold. We're going to do something different. We need to change the scenery a little bit. We need a little bit uh, different perspective right now. And so Wes said he had some ideas and he sent me a text hey, you want to talk about the questions beforehand? And I said, no, let's just start recording and roll with it. And so uh, we don't even have a title for this episode yet. Wes, what do you, what do you think? Should we, should we make it up on the fly? We're pretty good at that. Um, I think with this one, a lot of folks want to know, when you, every time you turn on the news, there's something pulling for you. There, there's something trying to get your attention, and it's all serious. So I think with this episode, we'll be a little more lighthearted but I think we'll use it a chance to get to know you, Aaron, a little bit better. Because I know I've known you for a long time, since I think 2002. Um, but a lot of other guys don't know you as well as I do. So I prepared a list of questions to kind of <laughs> help guys get an understanding of who you are. So I think it should be fun. At least put a smile on some guy's face today. Well, I'm already smiling at the prospect of talking about that instead of how this day started. So can I just tell you? What, ha what happened this morning that you, you, I mean, you literally could not make this up. And this is the typical day in the life of a fab shop owner. You, I've gone into the office to get some more coffee. And I, I just said, you, you literally could not make up what just happened out in our shop. And so um, <laughs> I was three minutes late sitting down to, to log into this call. So I got to back up a little bit before we get into these questions, just to tell you, I mean, this is just unreal. So a couple years ago, we buy this brand new truck, Ford Diesel. I, I never even test drove the thing. I don't know anything about diesels. But apparently, as we found out last week, there is this additive that you have to put into the tank. But it's not into the tank. It's like into this little reservoir right next to the inlet to the fuel tank. Mm -hmm. Periodically, you got to put this additive, whatever. It's called DEF or DFE or something like that. It goes into the exhaust for emissions. Well, unfortunately, one of our installers put it into the tank. You know, two inches away from the little reservoir, oh, no. it goes into the tank, which you'd think, well, I can see that happening. It's under the yeah. same access cover, little port for the reservoir, little inlet for the fuel. He puts the whole container into the fuel tank, and we realize that that's catastrophic to the engine. Now, why those things would be together and, and that precaution wasn't taken by those Ford engineers that have been like what, doing this for 100 years? <laughs> I know, not the oh, best no, design. Right next to each other. So... Trying to get the truck onto the tow truck because it's apparently catastrophic. If you start the engine with that additive in the fuel tank, it will destroy the engine. It's like, uh. truck, just, just go put it into the junkyard. <laughs> so we disconnect the battery. Don't even turn the ignition on because it'll engage the fuel pump and that stuff will get in there. So long story short, the truck driver, the tow truck driver, we have to engage the key just to unlock the wheels to straighten it up so the tow truck can grab it out of the shop. Well, when they did that, it put just enough of that additive that's in the fuel into the lines, $11,000 to repair these fuel lines between the oh. tank and the fuel pump. 
Oh my god. On gosh. a basically brand new truck. It's like, all right, okay. So that truck's in the dealership. So we're driving one of our old trucks. So we got this huge job this morning. This is where the story just it gets funny. I mean, I, I literally am just laughing about it because this is just <laughs> this is to be expected. So we have this massive 6CM laminated job today to go in. Huge five seams, two cutouts. I mean, it's just a big, big job. Of course, it's Friday of all days of the week. <laughs> of course. We have two installers that call in sick today. <sighs> okay. So now right out of the gate, it's like, all right, we can, we, we'll still make this happen. We can, we can still get this to happen. Well, it turns out that one of the installers yesterday who parked the truck into the shop, locked the steering wheel, says that he put the key on the board. Well, we get ready to leave. And guess what? We can't find a key to the pickup truck. So the trailer that's loaded up, ready to go to this job site, is now stuck inside the shop with the wheel cranked all the way to the right. And it's in the locked position. We can't even get a key to turn the steering wheel to straighten the wheels out. So what do we have to do? We actually have to get the forklift to pick the front of the pickup truck up. We have to move cars out in the parking lot. We have to pick the truck up, move it over so that we can push it at this arcing radius out of the shop and into a parking space <laughs> so that we can back another truck into the shop, pick up the trailer and leave for the job site. And so, I mean, you would think that it was our first time ever loading up to go to install this morning. Not enough people, trucks in the shop. Trucks with no keys. The guy that had the key yesterday called in sick today. So, of course, he's claiming that he left it at the shop and it wasn't him by any, you know, it couldn't have been him. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I was dealing with and why I was three minutes late to jumping onto this call with you, Wes, because that was how this Friday started. But you know what? The good news is, the fact is, I wouldn't even say this is the good news. The fact is, we <laughs> have so much to be thankful for everybody else in the company showing up we still got work on the schedule the state of oregon is allowing us to work so i i literally thank god that that we have that despite some of these difficulties despite some of these unexpected little storms that have cropped up we have got so much to be thankful for we have our health we have work on the schedule we're permitted to work we got a great crew that keeps showing up every day despite all the chaos in the marketplace despite all the fear a lot of it's legitimate. We still got guys showing up every day going to work, and I am so grateful for that. And with that being said, I'm grateful for the opportunity to sit down here with no script, just your smiling face on the screen to see where this <laughs> podcast is going. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you, you don't mind a departure from the discussion about how to run a stone shop better where we can just see where this goes, maybe some lighthearted entertainment as opposed to uh, just information. So with that, Wes... I'm going to give you the floor and let you take this wherever it's going to go, man. All right. Well, hey, you know, I, I think after hearing that story, um, I'll forgive the three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, man. And, and you know, we might have to do a reality TV show. <laughs> it's every day, it seems. We've talked about that, and I think maybe it's time to seriously consider. We need to contact a network and see if we could pitch that idea to somebody. At, uh, oh, man, just a, yeah. Just, <laughs> wow. The drama. <laughs> Nonstop drama. Oh. Well, I think for the, for the folks listening, they want to know, what's your favorite stone? What? What's your favorite stone? There's a million stones out there. I got to start it off easy for you. I, I'm working up on the questions here. Okay, my favorite. And I know, I know you love Ubatuba, so we'll just give that one a pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leathered Ubatuba. That's the top of my list. <laughs> Uh, Maybe you can start with your least favorite. 
Well, that, there's a lot more of those than favorite. <laughs> I, I would say my favorite stone, we actually just did, uh, we put counters in our house, is Taj Mahal leathered. Mm -hmm. And um, I love the way it looks, um, love the way it feels. Yeah, great material. The, the materials that I don't like, I don't know, we've got to have like 50 materials on our blacklist. I'd probably put yeah. half the quartz manufacturers on that list. I would definitely <laughs> put Dekton on that list. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. I don't even know where to begin. Well, the quartzite and Taj Mahal, that's a beautiful one. I will agree. That's a, that, that, that's good looking stone. You know, the fusion, I've, I've got an actual piece of fusion that I milled down, laminated to a, a piece of aircraft aluminum honeycomb plating. It's a super lightweight, super rigid material. And I actually took this piece of fusion. I cut it. It was like 18 by 24. I milled it down. I laminated it to this panel. And I took it to a frame shop. And the people at this frame shop looked at the stone and they picked this absolutely amazing uh, color and design for this frame. And I actually framed this piece of fusion and just put it up on my wall in my office at home because it in and of itself, I mean, it is art to me. That is like the epitome of, of why the natural stone industry is so unique to see that kind of variety, that kind of beauty. It is, it is worthy of putting on the wall just like a piece of art. Um, so fusion's up there the top of the list for sure just for being so i mean the colors are so unbelievable and the variety you know that uh i'd say that's probably that, number two that's a good call fusion is one of those when you walk in if, if you see the slab laying down you walk into the slab yard it's like oh that's beautiful stone <laughs> yeah something else it's, it's like yeah. try and replicate try and come up with that on your own i mean you got all these quartz materials mm -hmm. that in in some area you know, they do a pretty good job of replicating the real thing but try coming up with that without anything to copy. Try imagining that design, the colorations, the, the pattern, the, the motion. You couldn't do it, man. That's, that's, no. I, I love the, I just love that, that infinitely varied and beautiful. To me, it's like sunsets. This is a question, Wes, I'll, I'll ask you. So let me ask you this question. Why is it that we as human beings appreciate things like a sunset where we come outside and we just go, Oh my God. Hey, hon, come out. You got to see the sunset tonight. There's something about beauty that resonates with us in our soul, in our spirit. And I think in a lot of ways, natural stone is like that. We see things that are just so unique and so unlike anything else we've seen. And it, and it resonates with us, that natural beauty um, from the creation, uh, I think yeah. is, just, is one of the things that's always uh, been a real substantial part of why I fell in love with the stone industry. And so because yeah. it, it's not like that stone's made overnight. You know, the amount of time that it takes and the journey of that material, and then you think about it ending up on your countertop, that's... Uh, yeah, it's the natural beauty. Uh, yeah. You know, just the, the, the beauty of nature in so many mm -hmm. different facets. And we're so unique. We're digging stuff out of the ground that most people on the face of the earth would never see, would never even know existed. And yet we're able to bring that to light. We're able to, you know, to, to showcase it. So it really is, that's probably about the only thing I really enjoy about countertop <laughs> fabrication, man. <laughs> oh. Well, the next one is, I know you love to read. You I do. are a, uh, and you're an author yourself. What are your top three favorite books you'd recommend to somebody? Okay, top three books. <sighs> well, I'll tell you a book I'm reading right now that's just really interesting. It's mm -hmm. called Contiki. Content. And it is about these researchers back in the late 40s. They got out of World War II. A couple of them were like Norwegian. 
And one of them was a scientist. So he got out of the war and went back to work doing research. And he had this hypothesis that the first people to get to Tahiti and Tonga, the, um, I think it's considered the Marquesas, that island mm-hmm. chain. I, I guess that would be southwest of Hawaii, or maybe, maybe it's actually directly south of Hawaii. These tropical islands, that whole region out there, Fiji. He had this hypothesis that the Polynesians came from Peru originally. And so he wrote this research paper supporting his hypothesis, and he was just, he was mocked. The whole sort of historical society, the, the researchers, the, the people that were really uh, influential in that, you know, that, that research and that data thought this was an absolutely, they wouldn't even read it. They literally, even friends of his, he said, hey, I want you to read this. And they said, on its face, this is so absurd, we're not even going to read it. And what he was suggesting was, was that 1,500 years prior, Polynesians actually came from Peru on balsa wood rafts, not ships, not sailboats, but rafts. Oh, wow. And they thought this is just absolutely absurd. And so this story of him and five other guys actually build a raft based on some data, based on some research, based on some discoveries that had been made archaeologically about what he based his hypothesis on. So they decided they went and got funding from this, the country of Peru. And they actually built this raft true to form to what information they had available to them. And they actually say, and this is like late forties. So communications non-existent. If this didn't work out, these guys are going to die. I mean, oh. and no one would ever know what happened to them. <laughs> so actually right now in this story, I was reading last night, they're about 2000 miles west of Peru heading towards Fiji, Tahiti, and that island chain. And uh, it's just fascinating. The experience that these guys had at sea with sharks and octopuses coming up on the raft because the raft was basically at sea level. I mean, it didn't have big sides on it. And these six dudes, um, oh, like, man, like, they're, they're like two months into it at this point, And they still got two months to go. So it just, it's a great story. So um, that's what I'm currently reading right now. How, how did you come across that book? I got it for my birthday. Uh, my brother okay. gave it to me. He, I, I'm into sailing. Um, mm-hmm. I've probably read 30 books on sailing. One, okay, so here's another book that I read. The book that actually got me interested in sail, sailing and why I ultimately bought a sailboat two years ago. So this it's called The Golden, Glo- or the, uh, yeah, the Golden Globe. In 1968, there was a world... Um, circumnavigation race. It had never been done before. There was a guy in 1967 named Francis Chichester (laughs) had single-handedly sailed a sailboat all the way around the Southern Hemisphere. It had never been done before, but he stopped in Australia for like three months and reprovisioned. But that was like a worldwide event. When he got back to England, he, it was literally, it made the news worldwide that this guy had sailed around the world, but he'd stopped in, in Australia. So these other dudes that were sailors in England said, hey, the only way to top that is to circumnavigate the globe without stopping. And so in 1968, these nine guys all take off on a race. It was called the Golden Globe Race. Single-handed, they had to have a year's worth of food on their sailboats. They had to have a year's worth of provisions. And the, the rules were this. You had to round the three capes. Cape Good Hope on the south of Africa, Australia, and then Cape Horn, which is the most dangerous body of water on the face of the earth. You had to, they had to sail all the way around that. They thought it would take 9 to 12 months. They, had, they could not have any other you know, people on their boat at any time, and they could not make landfall at any time. It had to be a complete 
nonstop circumnavigation of the globe from England all the way to the Southern Hemisphere back up to England. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so this book was called The Voyage of Mad Men. <laughs> and these nine dudes that set off in this race, all in their own sailboats, um, it is absolutely an epic tale of <laughs> just courage and, and innovation. And, and one, there was only one guy that actually made it. There, most of the guys either gave up or their ships broke up before they got there. One guy was, he had already rounded Cape Horn and he was heading north through the, um, I think that's the Indian Ocean and the, the, the east side of the South of South America. He had a, a, a catamaran and it broke apart. He was literally in the running to win the race and his ship finally just fell apart. Uh, he ended up committing suicide oh my gosh. Um, at, when he got back to England. Having, uh, it, there was probably other things going on. There was another guy that sailed south and he, this is such an interesting story. There was actually a movie done on this guy. His name escapes me at the moment. But he falsified it. He was, he was pretending to be sailing around the world. So they were calling back in their positions, you know, over radio. He was hanging out down there in the Indian Ocean, like sailing in circles because he was terrified <laughs> of actually entering the Southern Ocean. So he's trying to bide his time for like six months you know, it, 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 assuming that's how long it was going to take him to otherwise, you know, circumnavigate the Southern Hemisphere. And then he was going to sail back up and win the sail race. Back up. <laughs> this guy literally goes, he, he goes crazy. And he actually commits suicide. They found his boat, I don't know, later that year. And they found wow. his logbook and they discovered, that's the only way they realized what he was doing. They discovered his logbook and realized this guy was faking it the entire time. That guy went crazy and literally jumped off his boat and drowned was never found. Oh my gosh. Um, so this, this, that was the book that started the sailing kick for me. Um, and what was that, that one called again? It's called Voyage of Mad Men. Voyage of Mad Men. That sounds yeah. fascinating. I ended up reading actually um, the guy that won Henry Knox Johnson. He was an Englishman. Um, I read his biography of that race, which was, which was, it ranks up there probably one of the top hundred books that I've read. It's just a great story. This guy, his whole journey around the world took him like nine months to circumnavigate. Um, there was another guy on that race named um, Francis Montessier. I think he was a Frenchman. Um, he actually was going to win, but he ended up circumnavigating the earth again. He, he decided he didn't want to taint the sailing experience by winning this award. And so instead of heading north back up to England, he goes around the globe again, winds up in Tahiti, never goes back to see his wife and kids again, and basically lives in Tahiti. <laughs> I read his biography too, and honestly, I think he went cuckoo. Mm. He, I think the guy literally... That experience like like junk jumbled his brain or something because by the time I got to the end of that book, I was like, this guy lost his mind. For one thing, he didn't he just left his wife and kids, never went back. It's like, nah, I'm going to Tahiti. <laughs> but you know what? There's a so to answer your question, you asked about top what you say, top three? Top three. Okay. I, I would say in the top three is endurance. If you I don't know if you know that book. Um, you know, our production manager, Andy, he gave that to me for Christmas a few years ago. So Endurance is a book on Ernest Shackleton, this guy that led this expedition back in 1917 uh, to the Antarctic. Mm. And they ended up getting caught in this ice flow. And long story short, I don't want to ruin it for you, but, but their ship is crushed. And this is 1917, no communications with the outside world. They're in, the, they're, they're in Antarctica. 
and their ship gets basically surrounded by this ice flow and the ice flow actually crushes their ship and they had three lifeboats basically on this ship that they end up and this journey I'm trying to remember the name of the author he's a famous author that wrote this 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 biography on Shackleton but Shackleton leads these 27 sailors on the most epic and unbelievable journey of survival and fortitude and courage. And the ironic thing is that the ship that they were sailing was actually called the Endurance. And, 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 and the just, it, it, is, it is one of the greatest stories I've ever read. And I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. And it's definitely in the top three. I remember coming into work one day and on the break room, there was a giant pile of books. And I was like, well, who brought all these books in? And someone said, oh, those are the books that Aaron's done reading. And it was like a library of books down there. So I know you like to read. So that's why I'm excited <laughs> to hear the top three because I know you probably have read some great ones. And those ones sound very appealing. I'm going to have to check those out myself. Yeah. But probably some of the best books just as a category or genre have been historical biographies. Mm. I think... By and large, I've learned more from reading about the men who lived through times uh, than you're, the, you're reading about, you know, like the Revolutionary War, for example, which mm -hmm. to me is a really interesting, really fascinating era in our country's history. I, you know, the whole liberty movement, that whole story of how this little tiny you know, group of colonies stood up to the greatest military superpower on the face of the earth and, and ultimately defeated them. But reading biographies like about George Washington, two of my favorites, The Indispensable Man, which is the biography on Washington, um, 1776 by James McCullough. You see such a unique window into that era by reading about the biographies of the men who lived through it. Um, another one, um, oh, this is, such, this is so cool. So I've read tons of revolutionary history. Um, so everybody's heard of John Adams. And John Quincy Adams, his son, you know, both of them were presidents, both of them served in Congress or whatnot. But their cousin, Samuel Adams, is actually one of the most unique characters of the Revolutionary War. So, so get this. So during the beginnings of the Revolutionary War, British Army is, 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 is here in America. They actually offer the whole entire rebel army, they called it amnesty. They basically said, if you will just simply wave the white flag sign a document saying you will swear allegiance to the, the crown or the king or, you know, the, the, the British flag. We'll just let bygones be bygones. We'll pack up. We'll go home and, and we'll let things return to normal. They were even going to let, because, I mean, they were committing treason. I mean, that was punishable by death. I mean, if they caught you, that was like worthy of a hanging. Mm -hmm. And, and any one of those, you know, rebel soldiers, including General George Washington, including the Congress, the Continental Congress, all of them were committing treason in a sense. They offered all of those people amnesty. We will simply let you go if you will just, we'll just, we'll forget everything. They made two exceptions to that. There were two people that said, but we will not, if we catch Samuel Adams, we are hanging him no matter what. <laughs> because he was such an instigator. Mm. Nobody mm. knows this story, but he was like instrumental in actually tipping the scales in the Continental Congress to declare independence. Oh, wow. And even after independence was declared, he continued to be this major, major burr in the British saddle, if you will. And they were like, no way, man. We'll let General George Washington go, the actual general who's killing all of our soldiers. 
We'll let him go, but Samuel Adams, <laughs> we're hanging you, man. Uh, great, you know, just that era. Um, and, re- and again, reading biographies about the guys that lived through those times adds such a, a richness to actually the, the historical facts surrounding those times. And so, yeah, those, 1776 is probably one of the top three. Endurance, definitely top three. I mean, the Bible, I would, I would mm-hmm. throw in there, is definitely one of my <laughs> top three books. So yeah, well, where, where do we go from there, man? Well, no, those are great. I, I, I think um, if anyone's a reader out there, which I'm sure a lot of guys are, those are going to be a great books to check out if they haven't heard of them already. The next question is a little bit light, more lighthearted. Um, and it's, if you were arrested with no explanation, what would your friends and family assume you had done? Oh my gosh. Tax evasion, most likely. <laughs> what else would they assume that I've done? Oh, I would say for sure it would be some sort of subversive action against the government, most likely uh, not paying my taxes. <laughs> not intentionally, but just because. You know, it's busy funny. Man. I, so I was brought up in, the, in, a, in a home. I, just, I had a great, great, just a really wonderful childhood. I, I got to grow up in a really positive, really healthy, really safe, you know, a home environment and family, extended family. And one of these things which always annoyed me as a kid because I was always in trouble for lying. I mean, I mean, I probably wasn't unique, but maybe I was. But but I, I had a grandpa that it was known for being a very honest man, and so my dad was always telling me when I you know, tell a lie or get caught in a lie, Aaron, <laughs> Crowley's tell the truth, and it was like this long <laughs> lesson that I had to learn, and I eventually learned that you know telling the truth is a good thing. But I've always said. Um, in fact, I can remember this one time at a, I, when I just started my own stone shop, um, the company that I'd worked for for five years actually hired me back to come do some contract fabrication for them in their shop. And there was, I remember, to this day, I remember it. it was a vanity. It was Baltic brown undermount sink with some faucet holes. Well, as it turns out, I didn't have the right diameter faucet, you know, core hole at that mm-hmm. time. And I happened to see the owner of that fab shop. And he asked me, oh, so you're using your own tools. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I am which I was, but when I left, I remembered, actually, I told him something that wasn't true. I had actually borrowed one of their core bits to core those faucet holes, and that mm. ate at me. I actually had to, cut the next day, call him and tell him, hey, I told you something that wasn't true. I actually used one of your inch and three-eighths or whatever the diameter bit was. Mm. So that kind of gives you an idea of how this, this truthfulness was impressed upon me. Things as innocuous as that, I would lose sleep over. But I've always said the one thing I could do, I could lie about my income on my taxes. I could lie about that all day long and never lose a wink of sleep over it. And if it wasn't for my CPA and our bookkeeper who are absolutely meticulous and unwilling (laughs) to let me get away with things, I could lie about my taxes and, and it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. So most likely that's what people would go, yeah. He's, we're probably never going to see him again. So, <laughs> well, that was a, that, that question in particular. I was curious because everyone knows, yeah, you are an honest, trustworthy guy. Although that's such uh, an interesting question because you know you hear about people that are falsely accused of things, yeah. or just accused of things, and and can you imagine being accused of something that you didn't do? And 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 the ripple effect throughout your relationships, your family, your friends, extended, you know, the people that you know professionally just just imagine what that would do to you 
you know, being arrested for something, especially if you didn't do it, but you don't have the ability to defend yourself. You don't have the means to, to argue your case. And people are only left with the consequences. Dude, did you hear Aaron went to jail? What? Well, I mean, there are those some people, you, you know, you hear a headline and you're like, oh, did you hear so-and-so? This happened to me. They had to go to jail. And some folks, it's like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not surprised. But there's other folks like, no, there, there's a big misunderstanding because that, that's not possible. You know, their yeah. integrity, their honesty, their reputation carries them to where that, that is not yeah. the case. And so. And, you know, and, and it would even rattle. I, I, there's people that if I heard they were in jail, my whole foundations would be shaken. Because, you know, you, you look to these people, you look up to these people and to imagine them doing something that would justify that, just how yeah. uh, <laughs> jarring that would be. So anyway, that's, a, that's not a fun topic to talk about. I don't want to talk No, about I mean, you could take it a couple different ways. <laughs> I just was <laughs> figuring you weren't expecting that one. Well, along that one, then the next question is, what is one thing, only one thing you would want to be remembered for to kind of tell the other one? Ah, oh, that's good. Hmm. <laughs> I, I'd want to be remembered for a number of things, I think. But honestly, when I think of the long term, and I'm, I'm really thinking family here. I'm thinking of my kids. You know, I have six kids. Yeah. When I, when I think of the, the heritage, if you will, that I received in a sense that was passed down to me, and I think of the implications of of the following generations that are going to, I'm the patriarch of my family, my six kids. You know, I don't know if this is true of all of them, but most of them will probably end up getting married and having kids and all I maybe I'll live to see my grandkids. Maybe I won't, you know, we don't know, but there's going to be generations that follow them and them. And, and when I, when I really stop and think about this, the impact, what, what would make the, the impact that would be so so profound that it would actually carry forth for generations, you know, beyond, even after I'm gone, maybe, maybe great grandkids who never met me, mm -hmm. like my grandpa, that actually came from my great, his, his dad was known in Kokio, Oregon as being a, a, a very honorable man. Um, and then my grandpa became a very widely known for being a very honest man. He owned a logging company down in Southern Oregon for decades. And it was only after he was gone that my dad heard these stories about my grandpa and what an honorable man he was. And that, 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 you know, then that translated to me. And so but when I think in terms of all the things I could pass on to my kids that would have the most profound and meaningful impact would be my faith. Mm. Um, I could teach you to be a businessman, maybe an average businessman, because I think that's maybe about as good a businessman as I am. And that's not not important. But, you know, in terms of the impact, the profound, life-changing, generational impact, Wes, I would tell you that the, the thing I would want to be remembered for is my faith, mm. that, that my faith was not a religion, not, not something that I talked about, not, not something that was just words or rules to be fallen, fallen uh, but, a, but a genuine, deep, profound faith that actually positively influenced the people around me and that my, my kids would have, cause my faith is the anchor, man. Um, especially right now when you see the foundations of the world being shaken and, and it's, it's worldwide panic uh, and it's nationwide 
fear and trembling. People, uh, I mean, you watch the news, and, and, and I, I see it even in our company. There are people who are absolutely terrified about the unknown. What does this mean? What is going to happen? And honestly, none of us know the answer to that question. We don't know. But my faith is, is, a, is a foundation. It's an anchor that, that has allowed me, and not to say that I'm not worried, not to say that I'm not wondering about how this thing pans out, because I don't know, I mean, there's things I'd like to not happen. I'd like to still have a business when this thing is over. I'd like to still have this building. I'd still like to have my home. I'd still like to be able to feed my family. I mean, obviously, I have all those same concerns. Um, but my faith um, just provides me with an eternal perspective that, that allows me to see beyond the momentary circumstances. And that I want to pass on to my kids. To, for me to pass on and say, man, you know, son, put all your stock in the government because when the chips are down, the government's going to be there for you. That sounds good as long as you don't need the government to come to your assistance. <laughs> so th- that's, uh, I-, I would say, I, I want to be remembered for my faith. That's a great answer. I, I like that. I- well, the next one is a um, one that I think the listeners will be able to relate to. And <laughs> I'm sure they got stories of their own, which it's always fun to tell. But this one is the biggest job to go sideways was it the is it was it the worst customer and whose fault was it <laughs> oh my god i we've joked about actually writing a book about this because there's been so many of them okay biggest job to go sideways okay because i know the listeners are probably going oh yep i got one where this god. happened or that happened and we could talk for hours <laughs> i would say the worst one happened this last summer um and I, I'd have to be really, I'd have to be really careful about how, because <laughs> part of the humor of this story is related to the language barrier because it's it, these folks were from a different country, and so I was stuck in this super awkward scenario <laughs> trying to sort out these people that were so angry with us, and the husband and wife were so angry with each other, and I'm standing there. In the middle, and they're speaking this language, like yelling it at each other. They were, they were Iranian. And I didn't understand a word they're saying, and yet they're screaming at each other right in front of me, trying to, oh my gosh, was that oh, awkward. No. <laughs> yeah, wow. So that job was a complete disaster. I don't even want, actually, that's still so fresh. Too fresh to open up, too big a wound. All right, all right. But let me t- I'll tell you this one. You might even remember this one. Uh this is four or five years ago. I get this call from one of our installers. This was Chad. Mm-hmm. God rest his soul. Yeah. Chad's out on a demo and he calls me in a panic because <laughs> the, 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 the plywood cutout for the undermount sink. No, no, no. That was it. Okay. That was a different job. I'm confused. <laughs> that that happened job. multiple <laughs> times I think with him. <laughs> yeah. So he gets to the demo. And the customers were supposed to have disconnected the sink, which they only disconnected, but they didn't remove the sink. So Chad being this just massive beast of a man, he grabs his cast iron sink and just yanks it out of the hole. But the sprayer hose happened to be looped down underneath one of these PVC pipes stubbed Mm, out for the cold water supply. So when he heaves that sink out, most of us couldn't even lift the sink out, much less shear the pipe off at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Here's the pipe off for the inlet into the cold water for the kitchen sink. So next thing you know, there's like 
what is it? What is it? 20 gallons a minute, 50 gallons a minute is like gushing <laughs> oh, no. in the house. Homeowner happens to be there. They can't find the shutoff. They cannot find the, the, the shutoff at the curb, at the street, in the, the water meter. They cannot find the shutoff. So Turns water's just flowing the whole time. Water's gushing. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he's got a demo garbage can that he's trying to catch the water and he's running it out and he's pouring it out off the back patio. <laughs> Customers are just freaking out, you know, hands in her hair, just like, ah! Hardwood's toasted. There's so much water, it's like leaking through the floor. It ruins all the insulation on the underside of the house on top of it, not to mention all the hardwood floors. But this is just going on and on. They have to call the husband. They're, meanwhile, I mean, now it's just like, look, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a fire hydrant basically blowing into the kitchen and there's nothing we can do. They eventually discover that the, the house was like plumbed wrong. And somehow they, they rerouted the plumbing through the irrigation system for the, like the landscaping. And oh. so they ended up having to turn the, they turned the landscaping water off and that's what shut the water off to the house. So that's how this job starts. I pull up to the job site after this frantic call from Chad. And he's sitting out on the curb. He is soaking wet. I mean, soaking wet from head to toe. <laughs> head all the way to his shoes are completely soaked and he's just got this dejected look on his face he's sitting on the curb smoking a cigarette when i pull up just utterly defeated so it gets better so naturally we have to file a claim we've got you know to get a, a restoration company in there we've ruined all the hardwoods all the insulation and the crawl spaces got it they got to do all this reclamation i i don't think it damaged the cabinets Eventually, we're able to go back. I mean, you could not make this up. There's two more parts of this that are just like, you, this could not all happen on the same job. <laughs> My gosh. So everything gets tidied up. They dry it out. The, the, the blowers, they pull the, 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 the heat and everything to make sure that, okay, everything's going to be fine. They're going to have to come back and do the hardwood. So we're now back on the install. Well, it's part of the reclamation. All the carpet's been ruined. They have all their furniture stacked up in the garage. So... Claims been filed, whatever. Insurance is going to take care of all this crap. You, no joke. Then you remember this guy. I don't know. I don't know if oh, you're yeah, yeah. names on the I'll podcast the or not. So if you're listening, sorry to throw you under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> We're now at the install. This is where the cutout for the undermount sink drops at. You could not, the statistical likelihood of this happening, it has got to be in, in, in like, it, this can't be even possible for this to have happened. The undermount sink cutout <laughs> falls and shears the hot water oh, pipe no. off. So it happens. Uh, so then it get, but it gets worse. <laughs> so they know it's the hot water, and they have the presence of mind to think, shut the hot water off at the hot water tank. So they get out to the garage, and there is a stack of furniture in front of the hot water heater that had been taken into the garage because of everything else being ruined in the house. So, as climbing up onto this leather couch to turn the hot water off, we tear the leather couch. <laughs> I don't know if it, like, moved against something else, if it was this, like, oh, razor no. knife in his pocket. Somehow, we put a gash in this leather couch, climbing to turn the hot water off for the second time in the same kitchen. So, anyway... That job was cursed. It was. And, and, and so, anyway, we get the install done. Of course, now there's, thankfully, 
they hadn't refinished the hardwoods yet because they were still waiting for like to dry off. <laughs> so we didn't do any worse damage than had already been done. It just delayed, you know, these people even longer. Oh, so then we send the people a bill, right? It's part of our collection system. You know, the accounting department's like, whatever, the job's done, send to the bill. So the people get the bill for the balance of the job. And the people are so enraged at the, they're more offended at the idea that we would even send them a bill than all of the disruption to the oh, job. Man. So not only do we, we have this catastrophe on this job that didn't do us any good for, you know, referrals, <laughs> then the people refuse to pay the, now keep in mind, they got brand new hardwood floors, brand new carpet in their downstairs, brand new leather couch. Yeah, they were inconvenienced. The people didn't even have kids. There's a husband and wife <laughs> that lived there, whatever, you go sleep in a hotel, cry me a river. <laughs> they refused to pay the balance. New kitchen uh, for half price. Yeah, they were a little inconvenienced. Yeah, it was a complete, I don't want to call it a poop show, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it was one of those. They refused to pay the 50% balance. And that was like, why? Can oh, someone man. please remind me why I'm in this business again? <laughs> oh, no. As if it's not hard enough. Anyway, so that's. I could tell stories like that all day oh, long after 21 years of making countertops. I literally could tell stories like that till the end of the day. And any one of those points would be a nightmare. Would turn that into a nightmare job. But have three of those. Oh gosh. Well, <laughs> if I thought long enough, I'd come up with another one. But I don't know, maybe there's another question you want to ask me. Well, I got just a few more. Just uh, I don't want to cry when I start thinking about them. I know it brings back all the emotions <laughs> that we're able to move on. It's like uh, opening up an old wound. <laughs> Ow. This one's kind of going back to, well, because I know you like history. I know you like reading. This one is, if you were to sit down with dinner with anyone who's dead or alive, who would it be? Mm. You know, I, well, that's a really interesting question. I would say it's probably a toss-up between Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. I, you know, I, I was, uh, when I was creating this list last night, um, my wife was asking, I read her through the, I, I read her the questions and she goes, he's going to say Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. And that's that's really? what she said. I go, I go, I bet you're right. I bet you're right. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, wow. those are, those are great choices. Yeah. No, both of the, I, I've read numerous biographies of both of those men and uh, man, you want to talk about, I mean, lead, leading a stone shop during an economic you know, crisis like we're having and like what's unfolding is, is going to, it's probably going to get a lot more unpleasant before this thing is over for sure. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a crucible. It seems like, man, could things get any more difficult than <laughs> like they are right now? But when, and, and, and part of that's the weight, you know, you're, you're in a sense, you feel this responsibility for the people that work for you. And there's this burden that, that somehow this enterprise has to continue because people, this is how they feed their families. But no, and, and I guess even more so right now, you know, when we're sending installers into people's homes, there is, there's a certain amount of risk, you know, health-wise, this coronavirus, and some people are more at risk than others. So maybe on its worst day, there's, there's at least the, there's, a, there's, there's at least a, a somewhat of risk. But when you look at what Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill the weight of, of that responsibility during, you know, those kind of wars were literally for Churchill, the history of the world hinged on him. That story, you know, the fact that he 
kept England. They were just getting absolutely crushed by uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. They're like 1939, 38, 39, 40. I don't think the U.S. entered until, what, 41? Mm-hmm. Whatever Pearl Harbor. Maybe that was 42, 41 or 42. I don't know the dates well enough. But he kept England in that. Uh, and they just, it was just one disaster, you know, militarily after another. And he continued, he refused to give up simultaneously. I don't want to say begging, but he was literally begging Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the United States, begging them to, if they wouldn't bring, if they wouldn't enter the war to sell them equipment, you know, armaments, tanks, ships, so that they could prolong, because Churchill saw, he knew, he saw something that nobody else saw, that the history of the world would be forever altered if, if they did not stop Germany long enough or hold them back long enough for America to get into the war. Mm. He absolutely believed that the, the entire future of the world would, would enter this, this uh, evil darkness if Germany prevailed. And uh, so not only did he have to hold England together, being bombed, having the ever-living crap bombed out of London, you know, for weeks, months, years, he, uh, he had to convince the United States to enter the war. And, and his ability to communicate effectively with his people and with the rest of the world, my gosh. And then what, what Roosevelt did to England um, as they were negotiating with Stalin, his character... He he was such a unique. It's like once in a hundred years, a man like that. I believe God puts on this earth, and the all his preparation, his whole life story led him to that moment. And he knew, he he believed from his youth that he was destined for a moment like that. Not that he could foresee it happening, but he believed that someday he would fill a role like that, and he filled it. And the interesting thing is, is after we won the war, the Allies, you know, defeated Germany and Italy and Japan, England voted him out. He <laughs> lost the next election uh, for prime minister. Hmm. What thanks? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and the guy graciously, you know, he, he, was, he was such a statesman. He loved England. He loved liberty. He loved the English language. Uh, he was, man, he was an icon and Lincoln was no different, man. He stood in, I, I mean, what does the world weigh? <laughs> Can that be weighed? And that was on his shoulders. And he, he, I saw a picture actually the other day, I think it was on Instagram, two photographs of Lincoln, one in 1860 after he was inaugurated and another one in like 1963, maybe it was 1964. I mean, it looks like he aged 50 years. It's, it's remarkable to see what that kind of responsibility and those guys. At, and this is the thing that's so interesting is they, they saw the outcome. They saw the future. They saw the potential of liberty for humankind, for, for, for the rest of history, the blessing of being free. That those guys, because there was, I mean, there were calls for capitulation, for making peace with the South. Let's just, let's just end all this bloodshed. Let's let them have it. Let them secede. Let them break up. So, which, and now, so when you think about it this way, this is really interesting. So both of these guys were hinges 
on which the, the, the history of the world turned. If Lincoln had relented and not persevered to where the union was preserved, that was his ultimate aim. It, well, actually, most people don't. Most people have this misconception that we fought the Civil War to end slavery, which is not true. That was a benefit. That was a result of it. And he did sign the, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think in 63. And that did help turn the tide in the war. But that was not the fundamental reason. His fundamental motivation was to preserve the Union. He believed so deeply in the, the, the inherent goodness of our unique form of liberty that it was worth fighting a civil war. I mean, like literally to the death, 600,000 men died fighting that. The, 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 the proportions of soldiers killed to the population is just staggering. But check this out. If he had relented and the union had been dissolved, that was 1864, the war, the war ended. So 1864, 19th, let's just say 42. So 64 to 32. What's the math on that? 64 to 32. 30, 60 years. There were still people alive when World War, there were people who had been alive at the end of the Civil War who were still living when World War II started. Mm. So it wasn't that big of a gap. But had the United States of America not been preserved, the United States of America would not have had the military, the economic, and the the, the, the moral and spiritual fortitude to enter World War II and actually turn the tide. There wouldn't have been a United States of America. That was the whole point. Mm. The, 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 the secession would have destroyed the Union. And so you see those two men, what the, how they were able to see into the future that the prospect of failure was so terrible if, that they were able to sustain under that crushing weight and the and the the demands or the the pressure to end it early or to compromise or to give up um which i would imagine would have been so easy mm -hmm. you know when you consider the loss of life that had to have at times been at least something to consider they must have they had to have wrestled with it and yet those two dudes man they never gave up. And uh, yeah, so that I would probably not do any of the talking. I would just do the listening if I had, uh, you know, those oh, guys man. over for dinner. Yeah, <laughs> wow. yeah the, hearing their perspective and their insight, that would be. Uh... And, I, and, and real quick, I got I to gotta, I gotta just give credit where credit's due. That term, hinge, your hinge of history, that's something, that's a phrase my dad has used hmm. that, that helped me to see that. that um, in fact, actually, since we talked about Washington, here's another one. So at the end of the Revolutionary War, this is fact, verifiable fact. General Washington was held in such high regard at the end of the Revolutionary War that they, and everybody, if you, if you, we, can't, we can't comprehend this. We can't really uh, understand this idea today because we, our whole entire experience has been, we've got a three, you know, co-equal branches of government, Supreme Court. We've got all of these safeguards, if you will. Up until the Revolutionary War, this form of government had never existed in all of humankind. It had never existed before. All the colonists knew was that they had allegiance to the king in England. They were ready to make George Washington king. They would have done that. It was offered to him, and he refused. 
at the end, I think it was at the end of his presidency. And it wasn't like, we'll make you king, but he was basically being offered to be president for life. And this unique man in history, how many men could refuse that kind of wealth, honor, prestige, power? Had he taken it, it would have destroyed our form of government right out of the gate. But he had the moral, I think also he'd spent eight years in the Revolutionary War and then eight years as president. I think there's part of it. He just wanted to go back to his farm and, you know, visit Martha, you know. Uh, but there again, had he given in to that temptation, it had to have been there. He had to have at least yeah. considered it. Had he given in to that, there would have been no, you know, United States of America for Lincoln to preserve. And there would have been, you know, so anyway, my, back to my dad's comment. He's the one who kind of cued me in on this. Those were like history, all, you know, altering points in history, hinge points in history, where literally if those men had not been there at that time, or had they acted differently, we cannot even imagine what the world would look like today in terms of the freedom and the prosperity and the, the, the opportunity that exists for those of us who have the benefit and the privilege of living in freedom. Um, yeah, yeah, I imagine not many people would, be, uh, would turn down an opportunity like that or the power, of, especially if that's what they've known. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. I got another, actually, Heather got me a, one, of, one of the other pictures on the wall in my office at home is a picture of George Washington. Uh, he was he was a man of of deep faith and prayer and and uh, there's this great picture of him kneeling in the snow praying and there's this great quote of his uh, I won't I can't recite it word for word so I don't want to I don't want to muddy it but um, yeah he's one of my actually I got a big picture of Churchill on my wall as well <laughs> <laughs> with my one of my favorite all time quotes and it's success is the ability to move from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> so, Churchill lived it, man. Well, that's a great uh, that's a great quote to wrap this up. I, I have several questions. We might have to do a part two, but in the interest of time, I think. Um, Assuming anybody is even still listening at this point, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. And Wes, thanks for coming up with this idea. I got to be honest with you; it was a, it was it was a relief not to have to come up with another episode, and it was actually enjoyable and refreshing to be able to change things up a little bit. So, thank you for uh, for making this happen. Yeah, this was fun. You know, I got uh, I got several other good little questions back here. We'll save for another rainy day. But, you know, this was fun. This was fun. I enjoyed hearing what you had to say. Uh, it was great to have this. Isn't it, isn't it wild that we have this medium? You and I can jump on a Zoom call, have this conversation in real time, record it, and then make it available. I mean, we're, we're still able to reach out and communicate with our friends or family, you know, the audience of the Fab Lab podcast. It's wild times, man. We got, we got a lot to be thankful for. That we do. We do. All right, man. Well, hey, I guess on that note, what do we say? We just wrap this thing up? Yeah, we'll wrap it up and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Well, we'll Until next, next time. <laughs> Happy fabricating. <laughs> let's wrap that up. Let's change, let's change that intro one more, outro one more time. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. We could just run with it, man. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to keep that in the podcast. Until next week. Happy fabricating. That's your QS. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, hopefully we got some smiles this, this episode. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.